0: Frank Ling and I'm Charles Lee and you're listening to the Grok Science Show that's right it's a weekly look at the world of science technology and their effects on our daily lives coming up on today's program Professor Werner R. Lowenstein will join us to discuss physics in mind so stay tuned for all of this plus the Grokatron 5000 and our world famous question a week coming right up here on the Grok's Science Show science show. Well, one of the great unanswered questions in science is that of the nature of mind. What is it? How does it arise from the purely physical, biological machinery that is the brain? And how can quantum mechanics provide the answer? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Werner R. Lowenstein. Professor Lowenstein was a professor of physiology and biophysics at Columbia University and director of its Cell Physics Lab. He's the author of several scientific articles and was the author of The Touchstone of Life. And his recent book, Physics in Mind, A Quantum View of the Brain, explores this issue for a general audience. And Professor Lowenstein, we're very pleased to welcome you today to the Grox Science Show. It's uh, certainly a fascinating book you've written, Physics in Mind. Would you talk about a quantum view of the brain? I'm curious, how did you decide to come about writing this
1: book? Well, I picked up a challenge of, some time ago, a group of students and colleagues of mine at uh, Columbia University staged a mock biophysics symposium on my birthday. And uh, that was an elaborate proof on the vagaries of biophysics, and the braggings of his practitioners. It was actually great fun, though much of it I've forgotten, but the refrain, the refrain of one of the ditties has been haunting me ever since, and it went something like that. Biology is biology, and physics is physics, and never the twain shall meet. So I, this book, I hope, will show that the two do meet, and that the brain-mind problem is sort of the natural meeting ground for physics, physicists, and biologists.
0: So this is something of a vexing problem for, is really how can the physical machinery of of the brain give rise to something like the mind and consciousness? Uh, How is it really that physics, do you think, is able to provide the insight or
1: the the key here? Yeah, well, let me sort of put this in broader context. In the book, I deal with that old brain-mind problem. We see, we hear, we feel, we are aware. But what do we really mean by when we say we are aware of something? What is this peculiar state we call consciousness? What is the physics behind that? And I hold implicit expectation that consciousness has a physics explanation. Such a prospect may be shocking to some that our mind and uh, perceptions, our joys and sorrows, our memories, our sense of self, or worse, the glittering jewel of human intellect thought could reduce to physics terms, maybe blow to one's self-esteem. But it's really not no more than anything evolutionary. Darwinian schemes always step on the peacock tail. In any case, the prospect should actually no longer be so shocking as it might have been, say, 20 years ago. In the meantime, in those 20 years, the neurosciences have advanced on a broad front, and advances held up the mirror to the brain. It's integrated web of trillions of neurons, letting us see in detail, as never before, the stream of information that nurses our perceptions and information processing that precedes them. And it is on the information processing that this book is really focused on.
0: So uh, there are certainly other physical systems that exist in the world that are in some way information processors, circuits, transistors. Why is it that a physical system like the brain is distinct? from that of a circuit or transistor, and gives rise yes, to the well, that's
1: yeah. a very good question indeed. I think the broad answer I can give is that you have here in the brain, and this is what past 20 years of careful probing with microelectrodes by neurophysiologists have shown, in the brain you have a system that processes information, enormous amounts of information coming in from all our senses, in parallel and almost instantaneous simultaneously presents them to our state of awareness, so to speak. And it's thanks to that parallel processing that the brain can handle these enormous information amounts in almost instantaneously, as we do all the time. When we see something, we hear something. That's how we can you put it all together in no time, and no time means fractions of a second. So here, we have something rather special. In, in our normal digital computer world, uh, what uh, Silicon Valley is offering us, you have systems which, w- which are computing with the computer units, are hooked up in series, so they serially compute to arrive at a solution. The brain hasn't got the luxury for that. It has to do that in such a short time, and I'm speaking here of fraction of a second, and all that at once, virtually. So it has no other choice, especially since the uh, switches, uh, let me call it cognitive switches, computer people will call them just logical switches. In this case, our neurons are rather slow Very slow compared to what a tension chip in our technology offers us. So, with given that slowness and we have that material, that's how evolution has arrived at it. There was it was a Hobson choice to do this in parallel. And now, in parallel computing, what to the physicist or the biophysicist would readily come to mind is a quantum computer. A quantum computer is by Definition by its very structure, its mathematical structure, a parallel computer, and can handle enormous amounts of information. These are this is now information in the quantum realm, uh, quantum bits, instantaneously for that kind of purposes. So that is, I think, to answer your question, is this special problem of the brain? The quantum aspect is not at the level. Of synapses or individual lines of information, but in that case, let's take nerve ending coming in from the auditory system, which you are familiar with. In this case, digital processing and digital, the digital signaling is digital, very much like our digital computers in technology, right? But it is when these things are put together, the higher reaches of the brain especially in the cortex, but not necessarily only in the cortex, I want to emphasize that too, but certainly in the cortex where you bring these things together from various sensory systems, there is a quantum computing system has, of course, a great edge. In fact, I see it as the only, as a Hobson choice, in fact, in evolution. So,
0: if we were able to mimic this particular architecture technology, do you think then
1: mind could arise from machines? Uh, no, I do not. I'm not that uh, radical and not that far out. As a matter of fact, I haven't seen anyone asking. Anyone with, in his right mind asking a computer whether it has any feelings, it any emotions, or uh, is aware of things, or the passing of time. Uh, no, that is a different matter. I mean, to make it clear, perhaps, to you and uh, your listeners, is that the book here deals really only with the processing of information as it is presented and culminates finally in consciousness. I have nothing to say and about consciousness or the physics of consciousness. I'm only dealing with the parallel processing that leads up to it, or, or let me put it this way: with the, it's only is so, only related to consciousness insofar as the processing, parallel processing, is a, are the the preliminaries of consciousness. Let me sort of put this in, in, in perhaps in a broader context sir, to make that. Some years ago, I was lucky to find the mode of communication, a universal mode of communication between cells, uh, which all cells, body cells, not the brain cells, use. It's a form of intercellular communication via microscopic channels built into the junctions between cells. I call them cell-to-cell channels. Through these tiny channels in our body, the cells in our body, send messages to each other, messages carried by relatively small molecules. These are vital messages regulating the basic activities of cells. They make uh, the organ, the cells in an organ, a community. Now, in this book here, I address the question of how information is transferred inside our most complex organ, the brain. And I present a set of remarkable molecules that transfer not molecular information, but quantum information. Information carried by particles, many orders of magnitude smaller than molecules, particles from the quantum realm. These molecules manage to do what our computer with us in, in Silicon Valley can only dream of, harness the immense amount of information hidden in the recesses of the quantum realm. Quantum particles can behave like particles or like waves. All elementary particles will behave that way. Including small atomic nuclei will do so. In as waves, they will produce the characteristic interference patterns caused by waves arriving either in out of step or in lockstep. It's in the latter case when they are when they happen to be in lockstep, then they are become interesting to us. When their peaks and troughs all coincide, then. These waves hold immense information amounts, something which in, outside the quantum realm uh, doesn't exist. It's this state, a unique state of energy and matter, which quantum physicists call quantum coherence, that those remarkable molecules exploit. These are strategically created in the sensors of the brain, and I pick out the I in, in the book, I describe them as they occur in the eye, they extract information from the environment and run that information through round after round after round of quantum computations. These are the brain's windows to the world. Now, one can actually follow the the quantum information transfer inside these molecules, and to some extent their quantum computation with spectroscopic techniques and nuclear magnetic resonance technique of high time resolution. When I uh, say here uh, high resolution, I mean femtosecond resolution, trillions of a second resolution. And it's thanks to these computations that their information transfer borders the extreme inefficiency, which is almost 100%. And we are able, thanks to those computations, we are able to see even the faintest glimmer of light. Those windows to the world won't miss much what is going on outside. So these are the elements which process the information, or in in, in fact I should here say compute, make computations, that allow us really to see. I'm not, uh, okay, now against all that uh, backdrop, backdrop, I have put forth the hypothesis that quantum coherence is at the heart of the parallel information processing. I'm coming back to the parallel information processing that goes on in the higher reaches of the brain, in allowing our minds to almost instantaneously deal with these staggering information amounts coming in through the senses. A quantum computer. Is a natural for that. As I said already before, by virtue of this mathematical structure, it is a natural parallel information processor, a processor that is ultrafast and given a sufficient information supply, it's virtually inexhaustible. Now, up in the cerebral cortex, the neurons, as we know from uh, the showings of what, what neurophysiologists have shown over the past 20 years, the neural networks typically have multiple inputs and the information coming in from the many different sensory inputs get processed in parallel. That part of the brain's hard wiring, call it that way, has been known for some time through those elegant work of neurophysiologists using microelectrodes. And that this parallel processing which the hypothesis proposed here addresses. A quantum computing neural web will do that sort of parallel computation hands down. Rather than going through the tedious processing of information one piece at a time, as ordinary digital computers do, a web exploiting the quantum coherence will handle myriads of pieces simultaneously, saving precious time, and brain space. In principle here, one processing unit and I mean one single unit operating in the parallel quantum computing mode would be capable of doing what would require myriads of units operating in the sequential mode of standard digital computers. So the name of the game here in the brain is then quantum coherence. The state of coherence we know of course and especially through the work which has been done by quantum physics in the past five years, or ten years, five, ten years, that state of coherence is short-lived. It's rapidly destroyed under the onslaught of countless quantum particles in the environment, and in the quantum computing molecules in the sensory systems in the periphery of the brain, which I mentioned, it lasts only, we know, tenth of a trillionth of a second. But, In the minute quantum world, that's a lifetime. And it's thanks to that instant of grace that we can see even the faintest glimmer of light.
0: This idea of quantum coherence, the problem of quantum decoherence is a major issue,
1: but- Let me straighten it out. It's what we know for a fact, yes? And let me separate fact and theory. What we know for a fact is that those molecules at the periphery, say, at the, at the eyes, uh, which I present in the, in the book, do that, and I do that in femtoseconds, fraction of femtoseconds. What happens now inside the brain, in the upper regions, that is hypothesized, right? So in other words, here, I, I, do, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised, let me put it this way, if given that evolution has found molecules that com- quantum compute as they do in the eye, or as they do in other places, which you will find in the book, it will have found molecules that will do that at higher levels for the brain. So that is what a search is now before us. So that is the exciting prospect now, a search for quantum waves at the brain centers. Now that, uh, to make it clear, will be quite a task, a formidable task and I can speak personally with feeling here, I've been there. Herbert Fröhlich and I, Herbert Fröhlich is one of the pioneers of superconductivity in the quantum field, and Herbert and I were in the 19... It's quite a while ago, in the 1960s, were on a quest not unlike that. It was a quest with more limited scope, a search for quantum waves, at cell junctions, the tightly tearing spots of cell membranes. And our focus of interest then was a broader one, more elementary one, the transmission of information between epithelial cells. Now that search was guided by, well, we probed a, a junction to make it short. We probed the junctions of a number of epithelial cells. Alas, we came empty handed. There is a good deal of background noise in living cells and noise here is the perfect spoiler. Even in our best and most promising experiments, resonance in thermal frequency modes reared its, its ugly head and drumpled our spectroscopic signal output. Our tools then, just at that time, just weren't good enough. But the scene looks a lot brighter now. Better tools are on hand, whole arsenal of them, ranging from infrared spectroscopy to electron spectroscopy, to laser scattering, to nuclear magnetic resonance, providing a much richer, richer signal resolution. Moreover, in that I should like to stress, we have now the experience gained from actual quantum computing with molecules, an experience uh, gained from actual hands-on work, and nothing beats hands-on work in experimental sciences. Here, this is this part, of quantum actual quantum computing, not theoretical quantum computing, has been spearheaded by people like Seth Lloyd at MIT, Chung and Gershenfeld, Jeff Kimball, and Weinland. It's still a small vanguard in the field, but they have already produced, and are producing right as we're speaking here, the first actual model of uh, physical models of quantum computers, and these that experience will be uh, invaluable in the quest I've mentioned to you. Uh,
0: we are running slightly out of time. I'm, what uh, do you think will be the prospects for defining the, the quantum computing elements of the brain? And do you foresee advance in this area in the near future?
1: Yeah, as I said, it will be a tremendous task, but uh, I don't think it will be insurmountable. But then, if you press me on, on, this, on this point... I'm also reminded of what Chairman Mao said in the 1960s when asked what he thought of the French Revolution. He said, it's too soon to tell.
0: <laughs> I, I suppose we'll just have to uh, wait and see that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Professor Loewenstein, I think that's a nice place to end here, and I just want to mention again that your new book is called Physics in Mind, A Quantum View of the Brain. And Professor Loewenstein, again, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show.
1: Well, I thank you for your interest.